Exodus 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two umas for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. 
Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, that is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of, the, the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law, that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that, that, they, that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an epap. Well, as we land in Exodus 16, uh, a passage that might be very familiar to some of you listening. It's helpful to refresh our memory, get our bearings, as it were, with a quick look at the roadmap of the book of Exodus. So here's just um, three simple ways in which you can get a grip on the book. So firstly, we were in Egypt, where we see the power of God in chapters 1 through to 15, seen in his rescue of Israel. And then in this second part, we're in the wilderness, That's the geography, the desert, the dryness. Out of Egypt, but in transition. We see the provision of God in chapters 15, verse 22, right through to 1827. God is the one who provides, he protects, and he trains this infant nation in what it means to depend on him. And then at Sinai, the third part, the presence of God. Indeed, God's presence has always been there might be better to talk of the covenant. Here is the oath of God giving himself to his people and his people responding. In chapters 19 right through to 40, God meets with them. He enters into a unique, special promise, bond. And the question is, how will Israel live in obedience to God in the light of all he has done for them and will continue to do? It sounds great when you see it that way hand out, nice and tidy. But when we look at chapter 16, it shows that they're not happy travelers, are they? Like the kids in the back seat complaining the iPad has just died, and they're asking, are we there yet? Things aren't great. Tension and tempers are heating up under the desert sun. Now, for our international friends who are with us, I'd like to apologize. I have to apologize on behalf of the British people. Because we are great at complaining. In fact, if if it was an Olympic sport, I reckon we'd get a gold medal each time in it. Whether it's queuing, the weather, people sitting in our reserved seats on a train. We even managed to complain about our holidays. Here are some genuine complaints that have been given to tour operators. The beach was too sandy. No one told us there would be fish in the sea. The children were startled. 
we had to queue outside with no air conditioning. My fiancé and I booked a twin bedroom, but when we were placed in a double, when we got there, and now I'm pregnant. Another couple were incensed to find their neighbours at the same hotel moaning to the tour operator. When we got to the resort, we found out that Bert and Mavis from down the road were also there. I hate Bert. You see, grumbling is something that the Brits do well, but it unites humans across culture and history. And Israel are no exception when they're grumbling at Moses. And as we'll see, this is a serious point. There is a massive problem. And it is grumbling. But grumbling will kill you. It will kill you spiritually in the most significant way. Israel had already started their grumbling, as I said, at Moses, but back in Exodus 5, 21, for making their job in Egypt harder. After that first petition to the Pharaoh, what does he do? He says, no, you're not going to be released, and let's ratchet up the temperature on your work. Let's make it harder. No straw. Still make the bricks. Still keep building our store cities. They complain at the Red Sea in chapter 14, 11 to 12. You've just brought us here. We're going to die. We're going to die. The Egyptians are coming. And let's look at verses 1 to 3 again here in chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, what they had, uh, that they, after they had come out of Egypt... In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. It's been one month. Since the first Passover and that escape from Egypt, just a few weeks ago, God's people were singing the Lord's praises on the shores of the Red Sea. Just look over to chapter 15. You can see it there clearly. The lyrics are printed out for us. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver have been hurled into the sea. But now the tambourines, well, they've been packed away. Miriam and her dancers are not working on their next routine. Instead, there's a new melody. It's the grunge of grumbling. It's the minor key of murmuring and muttering. And to make matters worse, they're just set out from Elam. Look at verse uh, 27 of chapter 15. So they're on the same page. Chapter 15, verse 27. What are we told? Elam is the place where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Just as a fact, if you're in California, palm springs, this is probably where they're getting that lovely picture from, to name that resort in the desert of California. But Elam, uh, putting it in British terms, is like the T-based service station of the desert sure, yeah? If you haven't stopped, if you've never stopped at T-Bay or Westmoreland services in Penrith, you're missing out, yeah? They have a farm shop. The toilets are properly nice. They're even eco-friendly using the rainwater that's harvested there. 
You get out and you're in beautiful countryside. It's like you're already on holiday. Elam had plentiful water supplies. It was lush in its vegetation. There was enough to sustain, maybe even multiply, the livestock the Israelites had brought with them. But then it was time to move on. And that foretaste of paradise dissolves and the hard slog south towards Sinai was on. Again, sounds very much like leaving Timbi's services. The Israelites, though like us, as disciples of Christ, are on a spiritual journey. There's a pilgrimage here. There's a pilgrimage from slavery and death to freedom and worship. That is the journey God has called all of us to. And in Christ, we have started. And the journey is not wasted. It would be wrong to look at this passage as just like, oh, we're not yet at Sinai. But this is vital. The journey is never wasted. It's not an inconvenience to get through. It is a vital time of training and growing up. The journey shows who who are the Israelites going to trust. That's the big question. So having just seen and experienced and celebrated God's rescue over the superpower Egypt through the Red Sea, having enjoyed the delights of Elam after the thirst and grumbling at the bitter water pool of Merah, surely now their faith is stronger. Surely their muscles are a little bit more robust, ready to lean on God. They're flexed and ready. Their minds are sharpened and renewed by his promises spoken. His promises answered so that when doubts pop up, surely, is God good? Is God in control? Does he really care about us? It's like, yes, yes, yes. Oh, no. The heartfelt grumble that spreads like a cold through the community is verse 3. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. You've brought us here to starve. What? Ouch. That's stinging. Can you feel it? What a change of perspective. In other words, they're saying it'd be better if God never saved us. As one writer put it, grumbling is the heart shaking the head and rolling the eyes. Our grumbling is the manure that feeds the hidden sins of ingratitude, of selfishness, of discontent. And there are two traits to grumbling that make it so poisonous. This is why we have to see it as the problem it is. Firstly, it is self-deception. Look how the grumbling spirit takes truth and twists it to believe what we want to believe. We had all the food we ever wanted. What? What are you on about? Yes, they were shepherds. So they had meat to eat when they were in Egypt. But it doesn't occur to them that the Egyptians wanted them fed. Why? To work. Again, the truth of groaning under Egyptian forced labor sounds like the Israelites were actually just sitting around, relaxing. It was an afternoon barbecue in Gershon. No. How far had they deceived themselves to forget 
this making heavy-duty, massive-sized bricks day in, day out. No rotors, no days off, no sick leave, no holiday allowance. For 400-odd years! That's all they'd ever known. There were generations that that's what life was. They were no more than skin and bone tools to the Egyptians who did all they could to control them for their own gain. And how quickly they forgot what it was really like. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, what do we read? The Egyptians made their life bitter. Interesting. Same word as the waters at Merah. Bitter. And who is it who brings sweetness? The Lord. And it was bitter, not because the Lord put them there, but because of the harsh labor. Verse 23 of chapter 1, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Grumbling is self-deception. And we're no different from the Hebrews. Second, grumbling not only deceives, it distorts reality. Israel think the worst of God and the best of life in Egypt. Even as Christians brought out of the slavery to sin, we find ourselves looking at life through distorted lenses. The things we're saved from, the addictions, the habitual behaviors that break us. We think, actually, no, maybe I'm missing out. Maybe I'll just pop back for a bit, dabble with it, just to fill me up, give me some pleasure. Life was so much, so much better when I lived there. Or everything was working so well when I was in that job. Or if only those friends were still around, things would be so much better. You see, that malcontent, it robs us of the reality of the blessings we have in the present. To live in the grace that God has given today. And it's based on a distortion. It twists and denies the truth that God has our best interests and our ultimate good in his plans. Because that's what he said in his word. Plans to prosper. And those plans will glorify him and they will bring us joy. Now sometimes people, both Christian and those who would not identify as Christians... Both will say, I need more proof that God loves me, that he's in charge, that his way makes sense. They're doing it from different perspectives, but they're united in what they want to see. And I imagine that we could sit down, if I could, have the time with you, two hours or so, over a cup of coffee or tea, and we could chat, and we could chart things that have happened in your life, key events, small but crucial coincidences, happenings, that you could not control, but have worked for your good, have worked in your favor. Even prayers, even prayers from non-believers that you have prayed in a moment that were answered, but have now been filed, like Christians do, in the spam folder in our mind, where we forget it. There will be ordinary gifts of God's kindness in the everyday that you don't have the categories for because it is more comfortable to say those things don't count or those things only happen because I made them happen. 
It was chance. It wasn't enough, actually. I'll just keep moving on and looking for the next thing, whether that's the relationship, the job, the car, the party. That'll make everything better. There's the self-deception. There's the distortion. You see, we all need the corrective lens of God's word to our short-sighted hearts. And that's what Moses brings to Israel here in verse 7. In the morning you will see the glory of God because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? Moses and Aaron. Why do you think we're the ones in control? We're just people like you. We haven't made this all. We haven't got the strength and the power to do this. Who are we that you should grumble against us? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. There's a corrective lens. See things as they truly are. Ultimately, our malcontent is aimed at God. Whether it's when my sleep is disrupted at 2 a.m. because of a sick child, or um, the driver racing his car down our street, or the bus that makes me late for work, or my computer crashing and loses the latest edit of the thing I was working on, I might take it out on someone nearer, but my and your protests, well, they're ultimately against the Lord's throne. We're saying, God, things aren't working as I want, and isn't that your job, Lord, to do things my way? Isn't, isn't your purpose to make my life easy? When we're looking at the bank balance... And there's only a few pounds left. When it's Monday morning and the work schedule looks daunting. When the physical or mental pain that you continue to live with feels way too much. At those bitter waters, at those dry desert springs of God's providence, what does he hear from you? What does he hear? Is it cries to a heavenly father for strength? cries for help, cries for his mercy, or grunts and cusses about an unreliable, uncaring, a distant, weak God? Could it be malcontented grumbling flows from believing our greeds are really our needs? So how do you kill grumbling? If grumbling will kill us spiritually, because ultimately it is rebellion against God, it is saying, you are not who you say you are. If malcontent will cut us off from his favor, how do we kill grumbling? Well, this is where chapter 16 is so awesome. Because quite simply, there's provision. To kill grumbling, we need to taste God's grace. And isn't it amazing that without any anger or malice, God provides for his family? Did you see that? His grace is greater than his people's grumbling. His grace drowns out the murmuring and muttering. Verse 4, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight, 
you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. In brackets, on top of everything else I've done. Close brackets. But there's a requirement, isn't there? The people are only to gather as much bread or manna. This, what is it? (laughs) I love that. Could you imagine taking that into the marketing advertising department for the next cereal or something? Let's just call it, what is it? Anyway, I've not tried that. This bread, this manna, they need for each day. They need to get it each day. But it's not meant for saving. This is the instruction. You can't hold on to it. You get enough for one day. Grace for one day at a time. You can't store it up. And on the Sabbath, there'll be none to collect. So collect double on the Friday. Sabbath is a rest day. It's a test. This instruction is a test. It's not hidden. It's not meant to trick them, nor is it a punishment. Verse 4 makes that really clear. In this way, God says, I will test them. Why? To see whether they will follow my instructions. Later in Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 to 3, you read there that actually the way Moses frames it 40 years on, from the revelation of God, says, I wanted to see what's going on in your heart. It opens up. This is a test that's heart surgery. Will they listen? Will they trust me? What's going on in their hearts? Do you remember that um, Haribo advert? Where they, uh, it tries to make the similar point in a different way. Where one sweet's put in front of the child or the adult, but the children mainly, one sweet, and the, the, they say, you can, don't eat that when I go out of the room and you'll get a whole bag of Haribo later. And you see their faces as they're going, oh, do I do this? And the camera catches that agony and them waiting. And those who have the discipline and those who trust the promise get the reward. In the Bible, God knows what his people need. So he knows our physical and spiritual needs. And they need to listen to him. Now, obviously, some don't listen. As we're told in this passage, they learn that God is true to his word. The leftover manna rots, and there's no delivery service from Uber on Sabbath. Do what he says. Interestingly, the Sabbath was being observed before the command was officially given at Sinai. Did you notice that in the text? And then in those latter verses, written from the perspective of several years later, reinforcing that provision for 40 years. But this this command for the Sabbath was given before they had it officially ratified at the Sinai Covenant. Because what was God providing for them? Rest. Rest already. You're not going to work all the time. You're not going to travel all the time. You'll have one day where we rest together. And isn't it interesting, therefore, it's God who refrains from providing food on the Sabbath. He rests from work. God keeps Sabbath and he expects his family to do the same, to enjoy the rest he gives. And so the Lord's instruction in chapter 16 anticipates the commandments that we're going to get to in chapter 19 and 20 that come at Sinai and beyond. He is showing them and us that our ongoing welfare will depend on trusting and doing what he says. Not as a one-off action. Not, well, I did that a few years ago, done. 
but as a daily, joyful, and expectant obedience. Trusting his grace for each day. Grace enough for one day. Now, it's a very uncomfortable lesson, I think, in our self-sufficient culture, where I need to show, I can look after myself, I don't need anyone, it's on my terms. The uh, writer and um, uh, speaker, Nancy, Nancy Guthrie, uh, who does a fantastic uh, podcast on teaching the Bible, puts it like this. The wilderness is where the Lord intends to teach Israel that his covenant relationship is a dependent relationship. And that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, and that's what Jesus expects of his family. That the covenant relationship we have with the Father, Son, and Spirit is a dependent relationship. Nancy continues, he provides, his people receive, so that day, so that day and every day to follow for 40 years, God's people awoke to find that bread from heaven had rained down on them so that all they needed to do was take and eat. Every day. Every day they were learning what it means to live by faith. Learning to trust the one who said, I will be your God. That's why it's so uncomfortable for us today. It's the hardest lesson to learn. If God wanted to teach you what it means to live by dependent trust on him, what it means to take him at his word and act upon it, what area would he challenge you on right now? What would it be? Your health? Your possessions? Your money? Your five-year plan? How you use your leisure? Your sex life? What you eat? What you drink? Your restlessness? Your need to always be on the move to the next thing? What is it? What would he challenge to say, do you depend on me? Do you trust me enough? In two weekends' time, we're, we're introducing our stewardship campaign, and we've already sent out letters uh, to those who uh, are a regular part of our church family here. That campaign's called Joy in Giving, and Gabby was praying for us. It's an opportunity to, to prayerfully consider how we can depend on God to use us as a family to financially support the work that Grace Church Manchester does, and not just Grace Church, but the mission partners, the charities, the ministries that we support beyond ourselves. And our big prayer, my big prayer, actually, at the heart of this, is that God would meet with each of us, wherever you are on that journey, that he would meet each of us and do a deep work of setting us free to just depend on him radically. That's where I've kind of landed as I've been thinking about all of this and thinking about it not just in the last few weeks as something to do, but since joining Grace Church as interim senior pastor and looking at where we're at as a church and what this means for us and where is he calling us onto. And it's kind of where I just sum it up. Free to depend on him. Radically. Scarily. In a new way that sees him deeper as a loving father who will provide all we need and that's the place we can start to cultivate gospel generosity it will flow out it will flow over i came across this story about a guy called dan 
um, in Anthony Billington's fantastic resource on Exodus. He's done a series of Bible studies that are brilliant, and he includes this illustration. Let me share it with you. Dan makes beautiful bespoke furniture. He's never had any formal training, which surprises many of the people who, who buy his um, furniture because of the quality of his craftsmanship. But his learning comes from trying out stuff, he says, and prayer. He regularly finds himself saying to God, you're physically going to have to help me with this one. And often God obliges. Now, one day, Dan was trying to work out how to create a metallic effect within the small crevices of the knots or burr in, in oak. And the experiment involves melting pewter in a pan, but Dan didn't have a pan. And with four kids and a wife fully occupied with the money is tight. So buying a pan that he might only use once wasn't an option, nor was he going to help himself to the one in the kitchen sort of quietly just without anyone noticing. Melted pewter, you see, doesn't mix well with the kids' baked beans. But Dan said, I don't even know if I prayed exactly. I just said to God, it was something I'd like to do. I didn't need it for survival or a specific job. I just wanted to learn a new process I could use in the future. And as he crossed the garden back to the house, he noticed something. There was a skip next to his fence, and that wasn't unusual because where they live, their house is between a working farm and a small industrial estate, and the skip is usually filled with deceased tractor parts. But on this day, as he, lying on top of a dead starter motor was an old pan. Exactly what Dan needed. God has provided for me so many times, he said. But this incident particularly stands out. It was such a small thing, yet so specific. It was God saying, I love you and want to give you good things. It showed me that he was interested in the work I'm doing. And he cared about me not taking something from my family to do it. An old pan. <laughs> God is our provider. And it seems so clearly, isn't it, when Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. Isn't it interesting that in that crowd, there are bound to be people who had no idea what had just happened. They were just getting a free lunch. And that's where they left it. They didn't want to find out. When the people remembered the miracle of the manna and wanted Jesus to do it again, that's what they said to him in John 6. When Jesus responded saying, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger in John 6.35, they did just what their ancestors did in the wilderness. In John 6 we read, they grumbled. Verse 41. Many disciples stopped following Jesus. He continues, Jesus said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So it wasn't eternal life giving. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. His body on the cross for us. Jesus in his righteous life and atoning death is God's provision that nourishes and satisfies the human soul. And as we live by faith in the training ground of this world, the next week ahead, the next year, the next decade, the, however long the Lord keeps us on this earth, until Jesus returns, this training ground which counts for his kingdom 
the true and living bread from heaven, Jesus, continues to offer himself to us. So today, quite simply, will you trust and believe him for eternal salvation? To repent of the grumbling discontent you have at God and receive his generous love. In a few minutes, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And as Israelites kept a jar of manna, that instruction, keep a jar of manna on show in the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, to remind them of God's miraculous provision, so Jesus gives us bread and wine. We have it in these little pots and, and a little wafer. Other times we break the bread and have it in little cups. Other churches have one cup and one loaf. But we have this reminder, a lasting remembrance, a spiritual meal until he returns to bring us into his kingdom. And as we take these tokens of bread and wine, we're declaring that we depend on this one true bread of life. We savor Jesus's sacrificial death as our life. His body broken for our sin. We give thanks for and pray for the strengthening of our souls to depend on him each day with gratitude. We take the benefits of his atoning death and his victorious resurrection. It changes our confidence because we know he will keep us day by day until we cross over into the promised land, into the kingdom of the beloved son, as Paul puts it in Colossians 1. And if we're doing that, you know what grumbling's killed by? The grace of God, which leads to generosity. Grace begats grace. There's enough for each day. Just come before the Lord now in quiet. What is it you need to repent of in your grumbling? And in your own words, find the way to say, Lord, I depend on you with thanks. And then I'm going to pray this prayer that John Wesley wrote many centuries ago. And if you want to echo it in your hearts, please do. If you want to say it out loud with me, please do. And so we pray. Jesus, we your promise plead. Grant the things for which we pray. Give us, Lord, our daily bread, this and every happy day. Now our bodies strength renew. Feed our needy spirits too. Comfort every longing heart, longing you alone to know. Nourishment divine impart. Immaterial bread bestow bread by which our souls may live. Give yourself forever, give. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.